as we come to God's Word. You can turn in your Bibles to Mark in chapter 14. We'll be hearing from God in Mark 14. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our great God, would you, would you convict our hearts of sin? And in this conviction, would you bring us comfort in the truth of the gospel? Help us now to see you as you are. Guide us by your spirit. Bring light to our minds and light to our hearts so that we might see and believe. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll start in Mark chapter 14 in verse 26. We'll read a number of verses here and then skip a little bit in the story to, uh, to verse 66. But this is Mark 14 beginning in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Skip to 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out of the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is God's word. Now, in this section, we have a very, very important question here which I'll get to in a minute, because we have to set some of the stage first and look at some of the context. If you were here with us last week, you know that we've been reading through the book of Mark. We're getting very close now to the end. And last week was the first Last Supper, when Jesus is sitting with his disciples on the night before he was killed. And at that time, Jesus then is equating himself with the Passover meal. 
basically setting up what is a new exodus in bringing his people out of the bondage of sin into the new kingdom in Jesus. Jesus then talks about this in, during this time of communion, their common union, that they are one with Jesus. We're now on the tail end of that. So they've just finished their Passover meal. It's still nighttime, and they're on their way then to Gethsemane, which is this little space, garden area at the foot of the Mount of Olives, and that's the place where we know he'll be arrested this night. And Jesus here keeps saying shocking or at least surprising things. In this text, in verse 29, he says, you will all fall away. Not something you're hoping to hear from Jesus. And this word fall away, by the way, is the same word that Jesus uses in the parable of the sower, or the parable of the seeds. You remember that? The, the guy that's tossing out seeds, and there's the four different kinds of soils, the, the, the path, and then the rocky soil, and the thorny soil, and then the good soil. This is not a good soil moment. This is the rocky soil. He said of the rocky soil in chapter 4, he said, the rocky soil, they receive the seed with joy and they endure for a while, but when persecution or trial comes, those seeds fall away. That's now being used to describe his closest disciples that they'll be ones like the rocky soil, that they'll fall away. And the reason for that is, is in here. Jesus uh, says that they'll all fall away for, here's the reason, um, for it is written. You'll strike the sheep or the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's quoting something from Zechariah in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is saying this, I, I know how this is going to go. And even though this is all going to look like it's all out of whack, listen, I want you to trust me. This is all going according to God's plan of redemption. But I would imagine that wasn't super helpful for the disciples. I don't, I don't know how this felt to hear it exactly, but if you're walking with Jesus and he says, you're all going to fall away, you know, I, I imagine that doesn't feel great. Uh, a, a little insulting, maybe, or uh, a little uh, uh, scary or confusing, a little frightening to go, you know, uh, it does, what, it, what does he exactly mean by that? And, and I think in this, that's because we often think we know ourselves better than we actually do. They all say, no, this isn't going to happen. Peter is the strongest one because he's Peter. And he goes, no, I'm not going to fall away. He throws everybody else under the bus, which I think is interesting. Even if all of those guys fall away, I at least definitely will not. He asserts his loyalty here. It even says the word in my Bible is translated the word emphatically. You know, like the, the fist pounding. I will not. You better believe it. And then so Jesus addresses Peter and says, Yes, you will. You will deny me. In fact, tonight, in the very next hours of this night, before the rooster crows, you're going to not deny me once and twice and three times. You'll say you don't even know me. And it happened just as Jesus said. 
Um, in the later section, Jesus is on trial there. This is the early hours of the morning. And Paul's in the, or Peter is in the, the high priest's courtyard. So he wants to, to be close, but not too close. It's close enough to at least get accused of things. And this girl goes, hey, don't you know him? And not just you know him, but you're one of him. You're with him. You're part of him. And Peter says, no, no. You know, we get to the third one, and it increases in intensity until he's eventually, in verse 71, calling down curses on himself, swearing by the name of God, I don't know this man. He doesn't even call him Jesus, by the way. I don't know this man. And then the rooster crows. You know, just personally, I wonder, why didn't this hit Peter until then? Did you ever wonder that? You know, after the first one, didn't he go, oh man, that was a denial, I should stop. You know, especially there's a section uh, uh, that says uh, after the first denial, then the rooster crowed. Now, there's some discussion about uh, whether or not that was in Mark's original. But, you know, after that rooster crows the first time, don't you go, oh, 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 wait. <laughs> it's like we, he doesn't even realize what he's doing. He's still responsible for it. But sin is so blinding. It just makes us crazy. And so he persists in denying Jesus until he gets to the third one, and then the rooster crows again. In Luke's gospel, there's a disturbing detail. Mark tends to give us the bare bones of things, but, but Luke, at the end at this point, when the rooster crowed, it says, uh, Mark writes, then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now, that line gives me goosebumps. If I've just said, I don't know this man, and then he turns and looks at me, what kind of facial expression does he have then? Is it anger? Is it sadness? Hurt? At this point, then, Peter basically comes undone. He breaks down and wept. He, he broke down and wept, Mark says, but you know, that's probably not words enough to describe what that experience probably felt like. Now, here is the point at which we get to the very, very important question. Here's what I wonder as we go through this text. How is Peter any different from Judas. We just talked about Judas a couple weeks ago at the Last Supper. One of you will betray me, Jesus says. How is Peter any different than Judas? We tend to consider them very different. People, even nowadays, name their kids Peter. I haven't heard a Judas in a while. <laughs> Little Judas, you know, I, that just feels wrong. It's like naming your child Hitler or something. I, I mean, we tend to look at these guys as like so wildly different, but they're not that different, are they? Both of them deny Jesus. Peter does it by saying he doesn't know Jesus, and Judas by saying he does know Jesus. Both of them sin blatantly in the face of the Lord. 
both of them come undone and are crushed by what they've done. And both of them are sorry for what they've done. In Mark's gospel, after Jesus is arrested in the garden, we don't hear any more from Judas. He just kind of disappears. We don't know what happens to him in Mark's gospel. But Matthew fills in some of the blanks for us. And we know, based on uh, the 27th chapter of Matthew, that, that Judas felt regret. He goes back to the high priest that he's made the deal with, and he throws the money back at them. Take it back. I don't want this money anymore. And he hangs himself. Judas committed suicide. Judas was condemned, not because he committed suicide per se, but condemned because of his sin. Peter, on the other hand, also sinned, also denied the Lord, also is crushed, but he's restored. He's redeemed. In fact, he's one of the primary apostles in the New Testament in the spread of the gospel. Why? This is not a new contrast, by the way. We could see this sort of dichotomy between the two. Um, in the Old Testament, the first two kings of Israel, we know, are our quiz time, our King Saul and King David. And these two kings, uh, Saul famously known as sort of a bad king, and, and David known as, as sort of a, a good king. Both of them, though, sin and sin in big ways. Saul uh, with the sin of divination and idolatry, among other things. And, and David, the sin of adultery and murder. Yikes. And both of them are confronted by prophets for their sin. And both of them say that they're sorry for what they've done. I have sinned, they said, which is, by the way, the same word that Judas uses. I have sinned. For King Saul, his kingdom is ripped from his hands. But for King David, his kingdom is established forever, and he is in the line of Christ himself. Why? I don't think I need to tell you why this question matters for us. Because... I don't think I need to tell you that we are all sinners before God. That in our own ways we deny Jesus. So this question then becomes very real because I wonder then, what is it that takes me down the path of Judas and what is it that takes me down the path of Peter? Will I end up on the path of King Saul, where the kingdom is ripped from his hands, or down the path of King David, where his kingdom is established? Will I go down the path of destruction and death, or the path of restoration and life? What is the difference between Peter and Judas? The answer here is that they have very different kinds of grief or sorrow. Turn to 2 Corinthians in chapter 7. Paul helps us with this. So I get there myself. 2 Corinthians 7. So what's happening in this context is 
We know there's 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, but in between those, Paul had written another letter that we no longer have. It's not part of the scripture. It's sort of lost. We don't know exactly what was in it. Paul wrote a lot of things, a lot more than, than is in the Bible. Uh, so he'd written uh, the first letter to this church at Corinth, and then this mysterious second letter, and now he's writing this letter that we're reading from. He'll refer to this letter. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 8, Paul says this. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10, this is what we want. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Let me unroll this then a little bit. Paul's saying to the church at Corinthians, I am glad I made you sad. Not because he likes to go around and just make people sad, but, but that, that that sadness, that grief produced something. It, it was a particular kind of sadness that was worked in them. So in this text, in verse 10, then he says there are two kinds of grief, godly grief and worldly grief, or if you're Charlie Brown, good grief and I guess bad grief, I don't know. Uh, Cheesy, I know, sorry. Godly grief and worldly grief, we'll stick with those. And you'll notice in both of these, they're both grief. They're both sorrow, which to me says at least two things. Grief as a result of sin by itself is not necessarily a good thing. There are some who feel grief as a result of sin that is worldly grief or not good grief. And, and some will say, isn't it enough that I feel bad for what I did? No, it isn't. That's one thing. The second thing is that grief as a result of sin can be godly or good. The Christian will experience Grief as a result of sin will experience conviction, will sometimes feel weighed down by things done. So if you have grief as a result of sin, Christian, don't be afraid. And don't think it's hopeless. Because God is working in that. So now I want to know what's the difference between worldly grief and godly grief. In the text, he gives us just a few things. He says, worldly grief produces death. Okay, thanks a lot, Paul. But then in contrast, when he talks about godly grief, he doesn't say godly grief produces life. That's true, but at least not right away. That'd be the contrast I expect. Worldly grief, death, godly grief, life. No, he says godly grief produces repentance. So here's the difference. 
One who experiences worldly grief really does not want to repent. They just want to get out of the situation that they're in. So I've done such and such a thing or thought or, or somehow violated something or someone and, and I'm just trying to get out of that so I, and, and I don't want to be humiliated in the process. I, I don't want to be judged in the process. I don't want consequence or punishment that comes with that in the, in the process. Worldly grief then is centered on the self. It basically says, I don't want to feel bad. The result of that is death. It leaves the person feeling tortured, helpless, hopeless, numb, and up at night running thoughts about it through their heads. For Judas, this literally produced death. It led to him taking his own life. In contrast, godly grief centers not on the self, but on the one offended. I've offended you, so now I'm going to center on you, that I would repent then. It's not just feeling bad. It's that I want to turn from my sin and turn to a restoration of somehow what's been wronged in you. So if I sin against you, then I want to repent. If I stole your donkey, first of all, who has donkeys? I guess a handful of us do. If I steal your donkey, because I don't have any donkeys and I think donkeys are cool, it's not enough for me to just go, oops, I feel bad about that. You know, none of us would think that that was okay. If I stole your donkey, repentance then looks like, well, this one's easy, return the donkey, doesn't it? Or if I've said hurtful things to you, sinful things against you, repentance is not just stopping saying those things. It's going back to try to heal those things that were said as much as we can. And if I violated your trust, I might expect that I'll probably have to work to show you that I can be trusted again. That's what repentance looks like. Repentance then does not just say, I'm sorry. That's very self-centered. It says, please forgive me. It gives the control over to the other who's been offended. That's what happens when we sin against one another. It's similar, although slightly different, when we sin against God. We do want repentance, that we would return to the path of holiness, of course, never on our own strength. It's always in the strength that Jesus provides. And yet we can't make everything right before God. We just can't. That's why we need the righteousness of Jesus we come before him saying, I have nothing to give. My proud heart is exposed before you, and Lord, I need your mercy to repent. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. Godly grief moves through shame 
into grace in Christ. Godly grief hurts, but oh, it's transformative. I think Peter experienced that godly grief somewhere. In part because instead of being crushed ultimately by what he did, he experienced some level of freedom. Mark, as he's writing this gospel, the source of Mark's writing, the person who's telling him all of what happened as he pins it down was Peter. Peter is the one telling Mark, yes, this happened, this happened. So Peter told Mark this story. He said, listen, Jesus said to me, you're going to deny me. And I said, no, I won't. And then I did. And it tore me up. But now Peter, wherever he is after this time, is free to then own that situation. Say, I did this. I denied the Lord, but his grace is so much bigger than what I've done. That's from godly grief. So if we're looking then at the difference between Peter and Judas, or the difference between godly grief and worldly grief, or the difference between repentance, which is centered on God, or this uh, other t- sort of grief, which ultimately centers on the self. At this point, some of us, uh, this may lead us to a place where we start to feel a little nervous, maybe, or conflicted, because we start to wonder. Which one am I experiencing? Because I know I have experienced worldly grief for sure. And it can drive us bananas trying to figure out if our repentance is more like Judas or more like Peter. So we might try to prove the genuineness of our repentance, that prove to God somehow that we really mean it, but you know that's not going to work, right? I mean, Peter, in just saying, Lord, look, I'm not going to deny you. I'm going to say it emphatically, whatever it takes. I'm going to pound the table to prove to you that I really mean it, and it didn't work. Can I just remind us that if we're talking about godly grief, it means that that grief comes from God. God is the source of godly grief. That sort of grief does not come from within myself. So if I want to experience godly grief in this way, I have to go to God, not turn inward for it. Peter, later, as he's spreading the gospel in in Acts, says some helpful things then about this. In Acts chapter 11, So here, uh, the gospel is being spread not only to Jews, but to the Gentiles, to the nations. This This whole thing about Jesus is sort of just exploding everywhere, and Peter is now restored. But he says some of these things in Acts chapter 11, a couple verses here, starting in verse 17. Peter says this, If then God gave the same gift to them, the Gentiles, As he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they all heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
Did you hear it in there? In the first verse, he talks about how their faith, their belief was a gift from God. And then in the second verse, he says that repentance is granted by God. In both of these, God is the giver. God is the giver of repentance, and God is the giver of faith. Or if we want to make it rhyme, God's the giver of grief and belief. He's the source of these things. So if we're looking to ourselves to find some sort of godly grief, we may need to repent even of our own repentance. I know I have to do that. Lord, I don't feel as sorry about this as I want to be. I need Help me to repent of my repentance, to say again to God, Lord, I know I trusted in myself instead of you, but help me to trust in you. Because God is the one that moves us through shame to grace in him. God is the one that moves us through humiliation to glory in him. God is the one that moves us through hopelessness to hopefulness in him. God is the one who moves us through ourself and back to him. We know that the goal of this, the outcome of this is is salvation, is what Paul has said. The goal then of the salvation is not just to set us up and send us back on our merry way. The goal of salvation is to bring us back to God, to restore us to God, the one who has loved us so much that his own son would die for us. So we want lives then that center on God. In the beginning of this scene in Acts, it's just this small detail that sometimes gets glossed over, but I think it matters. In verse 26, they had just finished the Lord's Supper. There, As part of this, they, it says, and then they sung a hymn and they went out. That sounds very normal. It sounds very, like a very churchy thing to do. Then they ended with a song. We actually know what song this probably was. As part of the Passover meal, they sang a certain set of the Psalms in the Old Testament, which we call the Hallel Psalms, or the, the Hallelujah Psalms. And the final one that they sang was Psalm 118. So these were the last words on the mouth of Jesus, and the last words on the mouth of the disciples as they moved from the Last Supper into the garden where things seemed to just come apart. Here's the last words they sang, uh, verse 28 of Psalm 118. They sang this. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. There's a reason why when we sing, we sing about God instead of ourselves. We sing about God's faithfulness instead of my faithfulness. We sing about God's goodness instead of my goodness. We sing about God's steadfast love instead of my steadfast love because God is steady, but we will waver. We will fall away. We will deny him. Jesus knows it. 
he says to the disciples, you will fall away. You will be scattered, and Peter, you're going to deny me. But Jesus also says, I will be raised, and I'm going to go before you to Galilee. That little piece matters for us. I'm going to go before you to Galilee, he says. Because while Peter is denying Jesus, Jesus is on trial, a righteous man who had not sinned and was convicted, hung up on a cross, killed, dead, and buried. And then when he's raised, something very curious happens at the end of Mark. In Mark's 16th chapter, we know a lot of this story, but the women go on, on, on early in the morning of the third day, and, and they go into the tomb, and they're going to you know, prepare the body with spices and all these things. And, and, and when they get there, the stone's rolled away, of course, and there's an angel who speaks to them. And in Mark's gospel, this angel says this, Go and tell the disciples and Peter that I will meet them in Galilee. Go and tell the disciples and Peter that I will meet them in Galilee. That's a message from Jesus. He singles out Peter, just like he'd singled him out as the most emphatic one who said, I will never deny you, and says, no, Peter, yes, you will. He says, I'll meet you again. It's almost as if Jesus is saying specifically to Peter, Peter, I know you denied me. I know it pulled you apart and it grieved you to your core. And I produced repentance in you. I still want you to come to me. Go meet me in Galilee. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we know that your steadfast love endures forever, even when our love for you is small and wavers. Would you produce in us godly grief that leads us to repentance and into salvation? Grow us in our love for you and for one another, and help us to be thankful for all that you've given. You're a good God, and we do trust you and give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.